Burrow is a furniture company known for timeless design and thoughtful construction, and free shipping, and that extends to their outdoor collection. Their outdoor furniture is built to withstand the elements, featuring rust-proof stainless steel hardware, weather-ready teak, and quick-dry foam cushions. For Memorial Day, get 15% off your Burrow purchase at burrow.com slash ACAST and up to 25% off outdoor. That's up to 25% off outdoor furniture at burrow.com slash ACAST. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Hello and welcome to the Curzon Film Podcast. I'm Jake Cunningham and joining me this week, we've got regular contributor Kelly Powell, returning special guest Josh Slater-Williams, and despite the sun coming out and melting our memories of the snow, our very own beast from the East London, <laughs> Sam Howlett's here too. <laughs> it, seems a, uh, it seems in a strange distribution deal left over from Disney merging with 20th Century Fox that despite Avengers Infinity War coming out this week, we're also discussing Kelsey Grammer's X-Men spin-off, Beast, this week. Isn't that right, oh, Sam? No, Jake, you've got it completely wrong. What? This is actually about um, Beast, as in um, the prince that was turned into a beast from Beauty and the Beast. Oh, it's right. It's a solo movie. Right, and Josh, you were saying it's also a prequel to Beastly. Yes, I definitely said that. Yeah, great. There's, it's a lot Oh, going wait, on. no, sorry, guys. This is actually a biopic of uh, Mark <laughs> Lebet, who is... Uh, Nicknamed the Beast on the uh, TV quiz show The Chase. <laughs> oh right, yeah. okay. Oh wait, no, no, sorry. It's actually a biopic of um, the uh, famous Jamaican Olympic runner Johan Blake, who was also nicknamed the Beast. <laughs> there's a lot going on. It's a busy film. Sorry, there's just yeah, my, our notes were over the place this week. Yeah. No. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> right. I think the president's car is also called the Beast. <laughs> Is that right? Is that that's, that's the end of the podcast. Thank you, ladies and gentlemen. <laughs> <laughs> I think that's right. Yeah, maybe. <laughs> Sam, what what is Beast? Beast is actually about Mole, played by Jesse Buckley, who is 27 and still living at home on the island of Jersey. And she's stifled by the small island community around her until she meets Pascal, a free-spirited stranger who makes her feel alive for the first time and she falls madly in love. However... A deranged serial killer is stalking the island and Mull's new bow might not be all he seems, forcing her to make some decisions that will change her life forever. Uh, It's amazing you just came up with that. I know, just (laughs) right off my head. Yeah, so much passion. Um, Right, so Michael Pierce, this is a a debut film. He's uh, kind of got highlighted last year in The the Guardian as one of 20 British Mm -hmm. directors to keep an eye on. And Josh, you've seen seen the film twice now in cinemas, been to a Q&A. Uh, this is an, an exciting guy to be keeping an eye on, yeah? Definitely, yeah. I was uh, personally very impressed with the film. And also, well, actually, funny thing at the Q&A, he says that the, act, the actors get so much praise that 
you know, he said this in chest, obviously, that, uh, you know, he's getting completely ignored. <laughs> um, but, um, but yeah, very fine uh, two central performances as well, particularly from uh, Jesse Buckley, who I don't believe I'd seen before in anything, but I believe is currently on television in The Woman in White. Mm, yeah, so I, I didn't know anything about Jesse Buckley. She was in, uh, she was one of the finalists in the BBC's I Do Anything talent show to find the cast of Oliver. Uh, pl- yeah, I think I watched that actually. Did you? Mm. Oh. I don't really remember her. Sorry, but uh, she was a finalist, mate. She was a finalist. Yeah. yeah. Fun <laughs> fact: the bit in this film where she eats dirt—that's actually just old audition footage from that show. <laughs> <laughs> I remember uh, yeah. the dirt eating. That was uh, episode four. Yeah. Everyone has to eat dirt in front of Andrew Lloyd Webber. <laughs> Whoever eats the most dirt without dying wins, and she got to the final. Oh yeah, and Michael Pierce just was watching that. Oh, eight that's eight years ago. <laughs> You know, some things just stay with you as a director. Yeah. And yeah, that just sunk in. Yeah. Sunk in the dirt. Okay. Um, <laughs> yeah, she was also in uh, War and Peace and uh, Tom Hardy's Taboo, which, again, I have not seen. Tom and also his father, <laughs> Chips Hardy. Yes, not forgetting Chips Hardy. This is true. Tom Hardy's dad is called Chips. Oh, no. Yeah. It's not a nickname. Wonderful stuff. Yeah. So we've got an interview with Michael Piss, uh, which you led, Sam, and we'll be hearing that in a in a little bit. But uh, before we go to the interview and get into our review, kind of uh, initial reactions to this film, Kelly? Um, yeah, I really liked it. I really liked it. I thought it was a really strong first feature. Mm. And yeah, thought, there's definitely a real confidence to yeah, it. Yeah, definitely. Definitely. And I thought it was a, a clever film. I think well-paced. I don't know why I'm obsessed with pacing at the moment. Anyway, it's well-paced, well-acted. <laughs> You know, like it draws you in. It wasn't too on the nose with anything, I think. Mm. I enjoyed it. Yeah, and it is um, it's kind of inspired from f- this folklore uh, around during his childhood because the, the Beast of Jersey, uh, who was a serial sex attacker, actually stalked the island uh, in which the film is set during the 60s. So when he's growing up in the 80s, uh, these stories are passed along about this this beast. Uh, and so he's kind of he's brought that tale to the modern mm. age. Uh, and has kind of thrown Jesse Buckley's mole into into the maelstrom that the Beast has created uh, on this secluded island. But uh, that's enough of us talking about it for now. Shall we pass over to Michael? And we're delighted to welcome on the Curzon Film Podcast uh, Michael Pierce, writer-director of Beast. Welcome. Thank you. So I wanted to start by asking about the title, because I noticed that, um, that in France this is going to be called The Jersey Affair, which is a bit of a more conventional title for this kind of film. Um, so I just wanted to ask, when did you decide upon calling it Beast and what does that title mean for you, for this film, for this story? So the film's loosely inspired by a true crime case that happened in Jersey in the 60s. There was a guy called The Beast of Jersey. Right. And so I, I, when I, it was kind of a working title from the very beginning because I just, you know, that's what the loose inspiration was. And the film kind of sort of developed very differently from that story, but the there was continued to be more resonances with the title. Like halfway through developing the script, I realised in some ways it was like a fairy tale. You know, it's an innocent, seemingly innocent young woman trapped within a seemingly wholesome family, and she ventures into the woods and she meets a character that might be Prince Charming or might be the Big Bad Wolf. Yeah, okay. And uh, so, you know, that kind of stuck with that. And then I was, uh, as we were getting closer to shooting the film, I, I, you know, was continuing to work on the script and I really wanted to layer in this idea of looking at the characters through the prism of their species. Okay. And that these are animals just having to navigate more complicated moral uh, predicaments. Yeah. 
and so there was there's also like an animal layer in there as well sure and I think with regard to the French title, the uh, I don't know whether yeah, La Bette was too strong for how they wanted right, to okay. market to their audiences, so they changed it. Yeah, okay. Obviously, it's not your decision, I suppose, things like that. No, yeah. but we, we had a, yeah, some kind of consultation on it, yeah, and okay. I don't know that yeah, they know French distribution better than I do. Yeah. So. Yeah. Okay. so you've worked on short films before, you've worked in television. Um, for the, your debut film, was this always going to be your debut film? Were there other things you thought about doing as a feature before this? Uh, yeah, no, I had like eight, I suppose eight other ideas that I was looking to be the first feature. And, um, and in, in some ways I saw this as like maybe the second one because it was that much more ambitious. Yeah. Uh, and the, the other ones were like more micro-budget scripts. But... You know, I was working on, it was like, it was 10 years between graduating from film school and okay. this moment. And at some point, some ideas, you just, you, they don't have, a, they're not rich enough that you're going to stay in, in love with them for that period of time. Okay. And I think, yeah, Beast was, and I continue to find more layers of interest in it. And I think also partly because it's inspired by the place that I'm from. Yeah. Know? And I grew up on the island and it was, it was, you know, it's loosely inspired by this true case that kind of had an impact on my childhood imagination and so yeah. I, and it was an opportunity to go back to the island and sort of yeah explore my, those yeah those feelings and those impressions that I had growing up there. Can we talk a bit about the fact that it, it's Jersey then so it's the place where you grew up um, it's not a place we see in film that often um, what is it about Jersey for you that makes it a cinematic landscape? Um, I think, I mean, when I first found out about these crimes, you know, the, this Beast of Jersey guy, it was, it, I think it had a big impact on me because it seemed so incongruous, the, like how horrific those crimes were against how, how safe and scenic and yeah. quaint, my, you know, Jersey seemed. It was like a kind of picturesque fairy tale environment. And... Uh, you know, traditionally in like a psychological thriller or psychological horror, you draw tension from the landscape. Mm. And I thought, oh, maybe it's more interesting that we just, we use it as a kind of contrast, as, a, as yeah. a kind of, as the canvas that seemed, it's actually the opposite of what's happening in, in terms of these crimes. And that seemed quite unique. And it also, it felt like we could embrace it more as the, the canvas for the love story. And, you know, I talked a lot with my heads of department about it feeling like a kind of... We wanted the film to feel enchanting, yeah. okay. you know. So, uh, and then I just had so many, so many sort of personal experiences that I try to feed into the film, whether that's like running through the waves as mm. they hit in the seawall or, you know, going through those landscapes that it just... I think if you have a strong feeling about a location when you film it, somehow that feeling is transmitted on screen. Mm. Um, and if I, you know, if we shot this in the Isle of Man, where I don't have any connection yeah. to, that was a suggestion at one point because there's okay. there's lots of incentives to shoot there financially. I don't know if I would it would have had the same sort of yeah, yeah emotions. And so are we seeing on screen a lot of places that you grew up seeing, a lot of places from your childhood, things y like that. Yes, but we in fact we can only shoot a week there because okay. it was so expensive. Yeah. So we had to be very smart about which scenes were set there, and so most of the big exterior locations are shot on the island right 
uh, it was a long I think we shot there for maybe eight or nine days we, we did a few extra days so it's like a long uh, a long week and yeah the nightclub she goes to at the beginning is where I used to go the wipeout the wipeout yeah it's actually called the water splash but okay. for legal reasons we had to like yeah, yeah, yeah. change it and that beach that she walks on afterwards was like the beach that I grew up surfing okay. those bunkers that scatter the coastline is you know that's all yeah that's just that's the west coast of the island that I know really really well okay so it's all yeah a lot of that's sort of layered into the into yeah. the script and okay and as well I was intrigued by um, the time period of the film because there's nothing that really dates it that much there's not I don't know like, there, there's no mobile phones or anything like that and as well there are no there are no references either I mean you've got modern cars and like televisions things like that but this could be anywhere in the past maybe 10 or 20 years can you talk about that decision yeah I mean that's something of the Channel Islands that they're you know right. it's this I mean now not so much but when I was growing up a lot a lot of the bars were like they hadn't been changed since the okay. 70s or yeah. 80s and I was and going back to that feeling that it yeah. felt like a place that was stuck in time but it was also yeah we wanted to create a kind of timeless universe because we felt it would be a it would be a better way for the sort of fairy tale and fable like atmosphere of the film to resonate from mm. you know there'd been so many tv shows and films that were about i don't know a serial killer and they felt yeah. very contemporary and it was about procedure and different sorts of you know the the clue is in the mobile the the text that they sure, sent from yeah. their iphone and it was just you know we never wanted to make a film that was about you know the procedure or the case or the investigation it was like yeah, it was a it was a love story trapped within this kind right, of nightmare yeah. scenario, and we wanted to yeah elicit all of those. We wanted the, the it to feel you know Badlands was a closer reference sure, to me than yeah. than, than uh, um, yeah a lot of these other sort of uh, crime films and TV shows. So it was a uh, it was a way to sort of yeah delineate okay. itself from from those other worlds. I guess it adds to this kind of almost dreamlike aspect of the film as well. This guy, you don't know when it is and things like that. I think if you tell someone that like, the simplest version of the plot of this film, it could sound like it, this could easily be yes, a BBC Sunday night drama. But even like the procedural stuff, that doesn't seem quite as procedural as we expect it to be in the film. And did you want to push back on things like that? Like the investigation, even this, the, um, the interrogation scene when the lights go down and things like that. Yeah. Are they thrown in there to kind of throw the audience off as well? Uh, I mean, partly when working within a genre, you kind of, it's a game of what you deliver yeah. in terms of giving the goods of the genre and right. what's expected and then partly what you reinvent, what you subvert, what yeah. you just completely circumvent and you don't do. And with each of these kind of yeah, familiar tropes, it was like a question of how much do we engage with it? How, do we, how much do we try and flip it? Say with the interrogation scene, you know, they're, they're, they're scenes that are so full of tropes, you know, yeah. Yeah. film noir, up, you know, up until, yeah, like recent TV shows. And it's like uh, we tried to think of it more as a psychological space. Okay. So, you know, she is being interrogated in a school. Uh, and, I mean, it's a nuance that's probably lost on a lot of audiences unless they, like, re-watch the film and keenly yeah. uh, look at it. But it's also, like, you know, the school is where she committed a crime in right. her youth, yeah. you know. And uh, we wanted the the um, the person, the, the detective interrogating her not to be the kind of uh, grizzled 50-year-old, <laughs> like, uh, you know, sort of male detective. Uh, yeah. You know, I was looking for someone to, that worked within the kind of 
the archetypal fairy tale. This was the wise woman right. that was warning the protagonist not to go deeper into the forest. You know, this yeah. was the platform. I thought this is—it's it, yeah. So we did a lot of these. A lot of these approaches were just like, yeah, move it away from the tropes. You know, in terms of casting, in terms of mm. lighting. Let's have this be a. You know, this is someone that's not interrogating. You know, where she was on the night. You know, that's not the important thing. It's interrogating her moral character. Mm. You know, we've got to sort of dive into that and using these other yeah these other sort of techniques or ways to sort of yeah move it away just from those those cliches but still deliver the moment of having an interrogation which felt legitimate for this story sure uh let's talk about casting a bit then so moll is in every scene and she's in you know most of the shots as well and she's very shut off from the audience even though we're with her so much her motives are so sort of ambiguous um so it's quite important character of course what was it about uh, Jessie Buckley that you felt like she could really deliver Moll to us there's some, um, yeah there's something very Jessie's like very uh, grounded and unfussy and just she, she, I, I, she's it's got a very empathetic mm. energy as a person it's very easy to get along yeah. with her because there's no like airs or graces or um, yeah, and I kind of struck me when I was meeting her for the audition that she was the type of person Moll might become if she lived under right. different circumstances. Yeah. You know, if she was allowed to just be spirited and just like make mistakes, and that she she could turn into someone like Jesse. You know, yeah. and I thought oh, that's interesting if we have Jesse in the film and we you know she, we we have her hemmed in by this family and by certain codes of behaviour. So it was partly like a marriage of just like the character and the person, yeah. but also Jessie as an actress is she has a very uncanny ability to summon very deep and rich emotions in a you know, within a amount of seconds, and the character goes on a very you know she kind of dives into a hurricane. It's a it's a you know it's a very big and grand love story, yeah. the first love she's ever had also it's like it's a really treacherous journey she goes on and so we needed a, an actor that was going to be kind of fearless in like you know looking at you know all of those dimensions and Jesse, she turns it on and like you say action and it's there yeah. straight away um, so yeah it was, and it was such I mean it was great for, for me as a director because it set the bar so high mm. for, for all other cast and all crew because yeah. <laughs> they witnessed her on the first take of the first scene giving so much it meant everyone yeah. just had to really give a shit because she was yeah. really she was really going there. And then um, Pascal as well, Johnny Flynn. He's you know he's someone that needs to be mysterious, but also this kind of likable, amiable character that you kind of not sure how much you trust. Mm. Um, did you see that instantly in him when he auditioned? I I couldn't quite see him in the role when uh, uh, my casting director Julie Harkin had because I knew him from his music a bit. Right. Okay. I really like him, and I knew him from a few yeah. of his performances, but I couldn't quite see him having that. You know, big moral ambiguity, and it's my my casting director got me a ticket to go and see him in The Hangman, the Martin right. McDonough play. Yeah, which he's now doing in Broadway, and it was a very yeah, it was like a transformative performance. I don't know if you've seen it, but he he okay. really goes to like yeah, you know, he he's a kind of sociopath in it, right, uh, okay. but also a very charismatic one. Um, yeah. and I came away from that thinking about. Yeah, Pascal as a character and how we wanted him to be a kind of shapeshifter and a bit of a chameleon and have these different shades and, you know, that he should be... Because he's, he's kind of the romantic lead in the film. He's the potential antagonist. Yeah. He's someone that, 
you know, sometimes he's like a big cat stalking his prey. Sometimes he's quite wounded and vulnerable. Um, and yeah, I, I thought it was Johnny's. Johnny's got a very particular uh, presence on screen where he can. His face changes quite dramatically. Yeah. He's quite boyish, and then he can be quite sinister, and then he's the handsome leading man. Yeah. And it just seems so interesting to play with that uh, through the movie and through playing with Mole's perception of him and the audience's perception um, yeah I think then for this story to work you've really got to sell their relationship like was there a lot of workshopping between the two of them or was it just very natural on set that came off we did one chemistry read between right. the two of them uh, and they got on really well yeah. just from and not in a forced way because they wanted it to work it was just quite natural that they yeah they're like good buddies now um and then we didn't do tons of rehearsal we didn't really have that much time when we're in uh pre-production but we did i was talking to a lot of them uh talking to both of them a lot individually sharing movies and books and ideas other yeah. backstories for their characters so they were kind of we were tuning in to each other's frequency and then we went to Jer- the three of us went to Jersey together and I showed them yeah. the locations and also like where I grew up and where some of the film was inspired by so we were like it's not that we went through scene by scene and rehearsed I thought I really the value was really sort of getting to know each other and getting to know them as people mm-hmm. and yeah sort of sharing ideas and they're very it's a very collaborative experience also on the shoot because they, they're not just looking to execute you know, one preconceived idea yeah. and I don't want to have just one preconceived idea or what, you know, the set should be a creative space where we're constantly trying to find an extra nuance or layer mm. you know, and they, they love that, you know, and that, and that continue, it, it meant my ideas were continue, continually like, enlivened because yeah. they were so proactive and, and trying to like, yeah, just keep it alive and keep it interesting yeah, okay so the film premiered at um, was it Toronto. Yes. And what is it like showing your, your debut feature to an audience at a major film festival for the first time? Terrifying. <laughs> <laughs> I think they should give out Valium to first time directors <laughs> at a film festival because you're, you're really nervous, partly yeah. because of the audience reaction, partly because it's the first time, you know, press are seeing it. Sure, yeah. And that you, there's, the, there's, yeah, there's going to be reviews and they're going to be released as soon as the credits go up. Mm. Uh, and yeah, you you can't not be aware that it's it is going to dictate to some degree what your standing is and your mm. stock value and yeah. what you know it's not what you obsess over, but it's like the, yeah, the, it's a big it's a big aspect of your you know your first movie going out there. So you're you're somewhat you're kind of neurotic, but you're trying to enjoy the experience. Yeah. Um, and then we had a really good reception in Toronto, both within the room, like people really responded uh, in a way that was, yeah, better than I could have imagined okay. in some ways. It was a very warm reception. Yeah. Like, like the jokes, the laughs and gasps yeah, and silences yeah. were in the right place. Okay, excellent. Yeah, <laughs> and then the reviews were, you know, were pretty positive as well. Yeah. So we kind of, it felt like a soft landing in okay. terms of the first uh, feature and so yeah we were kind of cushioned by that and then now it goes out to the wider world and it's it's under even more scrutiny mm. uh, but you know it, it's that's just part of the game sure. now I guess like I'm yeah. just gonna I'm curious if anything just to see what people make of it and, and we, we get a lot of directors on the podcast that have their films part of the festival circuit 
and I'm always intrigued what it's like to do that, like to kind of you know tour with a film. Like, do you go to all the places where the film is playing? Do you watch the film every time? What is that experience like touring the film? I, um, I've done uh, quite a lot of festivals with shorts, yeah, so, okay. uh, which was great, and you get to meet so many filmmakers. Yeah. And, you, and so for for this, it wasn't just so much to go to a festival and see movies and meet. It was to support the film and be there for the Q and A's and for press yeah. and. Just, I was very curious to see what the different reactions were right. in different countries. So I went to not all, but a lot of them: Toronto and Sundance and Thessaloniki and Macau. And yeah, it was actually. There comes a point though after like six months, yeah, where you feel burnt out right. by yeah. that, and you're you know, which seems strange because of course all the festivals are incredibly nice to you and you're taken care of. Yeah, but you start to feel guilty that you're not working on your next film. Right. Uh, so it's kind of you can yeah I think the first few months of doing it is great because it's the first time you're sharing it with the world but then some kind of yeah fatigue or guilt sets in sure. okay. and it's I found it very hard to work on your next script on you know in a plane or in a hotel room yeah. you can I can I can you know answer a few emails and that's about <laughs> it and um, so you you graduated from um, NFTS and. I know a few people that go there, and you went back to do a Q and A for the Beast. Is that right? Yeah. Yeah. What, what was it like to return there with this film? Yeah, I mean, it's changed quite a lot since okay. I was I was there ten years ago. Yeah. And there's all there's all sorts of new buildings there now, and lots more courses and lots right. more students. Yeah. And, um, but it was still yeah, it was it was great. To, to, I thought I would make a feature like within a year or two of graduating. <laughs> <laughs> so in some ways when I showed, uh, I showed the film, I kind of yeah. wanted to give, I didn't want to scare the students off, but I wanted to give them my, you know, what my, my process was and how, you know, why it took me so long yeah. and, you know, how tough and ruthless and competitive it is. And uh, because... Yeah, I think those insights were like so useful when I was at film school, and it would be great when a big director came in, uh, and you'd you know you'd get some interesting anecdotes of when they made their big you know great movie. But it was yeah. also I was really interested in seeing like filmmakers that had graduated and made yeah, their yeah. first their first feature. So I was just trying to share as much as possible right. uh, with the students, and um, yeah, get that. I mean, it's one particular journey I'm sure other people have done it like in a yeah. short space of time but I don't it was I really enjoyed my time at the film school and you know I was there for two years and you walk through the gate every day and you're just you're making short films and you're yeah. meeting other passionate filmmakers and yeah I loved it so it was quite for me it was quite special to go back yeah there. and it's got even bigger isn't it with the um it won the BAFTA for like contribution to British film this year and Alex Garland is now in charge of things over there yes I think someone said it was the best film school in the world I don't oh, know how they use yeah. <laughs> how they measure that but yeah. yeah it's really yeah it's grown uh, yeah I, Every year, it seems to yeah. have a new building added exactly. to it, and more students. Yeah. And yeah. And um, you mentioned their work about you know a next project or a next film. Do you have anything locked in yet, or is it still? Oh, are you taking too much of your time doing these kind of junkets? <laughs> no, I've got uh, yeah. There's a couple of projects I'm attached to. Okay. Uh, one set in New York, which I didn't write, 
um, which is great because I think yeah. writing's a hard part yeah. <laughs> and I'm looking for my portrayer yeah. to do that to do that <laughs> bit and uh, I f- yeah it's a story about a young woman who becomes a content moderator okay and as she's exposed to these you know the, the very extreme you know darkest recesses of the internet she decides to take revenge on the people uploading this material okay. so it's another kind of female yeah. driven psychological thriller right. but using a very different landscape uh, as opposed to Jersey we're going to be New York so, <laughs> which is great because it's the most yeah. romantic kind of landscape but also like how do you shoot New York in a way that it hasn't been done before sure, yeah. you know it's also like there's a, a challenge there and there's something else that I'm kind of I'm, I'm working on that's funnily enough that's also set in the States okay um, yeah. so you've gone to Hollywood not yet <laughs> no, no. I, I'm actually looking for projects set in the UK as well uh, but it just so ha- I think I'm I'm very curious to work with like US talent and to yeah. shoot in that landscape but I'm not moving out there in the, okay. in the near future great uh, Michael Pierce thank you for your time thank you thank you Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me, because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates, like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. I think there's something really interesting he talks about, about how if you just hear the plot, this could very easily be your first assumption that this is just a very standard, run-of-the-mill, almost televisual crime drama. And those were my thoughts as well when I first uh, read the plot. And I think it's got enough sort of muted style and intelligence that elevates it above that. Because when you first hear, oh, it's set on Jersey, it's about small town murder you think oh this sounds exactly like midsummer murders no this or, sounds like mindhorn it does sound like mindhorn <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> it, like even a an island off of the mainland uh or hot fuzz or something yeah yeah yeah, yeah. E- either a comedy mm. like that or something that everyone has seen before mm. and i think it manages to you know pay attention to the sort of darker aspects of those stories to to not be those stories and it's not super interested in the plot. Mm-hmm. Yeah. It's more interested in building that mood and getting into the psyche of someone who in a traditional murder story is going to be a side character. Yeah. This is not the police's story. This is not about the investigation. This is someone who is part of it. It's not about the killer either. Mm-hmm. Yeah. It's about a woman who's unfortunately been sort of dragged up in this case. But yeah, you're right. It doesn't. It's not procedural and it's not about a man on the run. And all the... Related to that, although it is sort of a mystery, it's not really a mystery because Pascal is pretty much the only subject we really become familiar with in any way, um, other than the kind of dream implications that Mole 
could be doing it herself, maybe. Mm. Um, but those, actually, those dream sequences reminded me a little bit. I'm curious if anyone else felt this of uh, another recent release, Lynn Ramsey's "You Never Really Here" mm. in some bit, way, yeah. uh, particularly uh, one. I can't recall. It's a hammer, but that's kind of a blow to the head in particular, yeah. which made someone shout "Owl" very loud the second <laughs> time I saw it. And then at the end of the uh, Q and A, Jesse Buckley suddenly. Pointed to this person and like laughed, you know, affectionately laughed. And said, I-, "I was really amused by how you like hurt your head," and but it was hilarious because no one else in the crowd was laughing at this except for I think the person who was being addressed and me. So I'm like, oh, did we all just collect the three of us just collectively imagine this because no one else is responding? And the actress who played the person everyone thinks is crazy now seems crazy. <laughs> I th- and I think that's what you and never really hear did about uh, this kind of. It wasn't in that. It was in. Um... Dark River, Clive Barnard mm. uh, had a really lovely way of not saying flashbacks, and it was like invasive memory. Invasive mm. memory, yeah. And I think you and Ever really here plays on that. The, yeah. the, these traumatizing events can come back in a very fragmented and destructive way that you can't really control. Uh, and I think we're looking back into the editing on Beast as well. That yeah. They they're using that to portray how damaging those thoughts can be, rather than just using it as a way to give context. Yeah, mm. and. We're told, we know fairly early on that Mole has a dark past, but it takes a long time to actually reveal specifically what that is. And I know that, that they, although they do, because you know, you never really hear, we were never really told anything about um, Whacking Phoenix's dark past. We just know it happened. Mm. But here, yeah, it still takes that time for you to get to know the character before you know her history, mm. which is an interesting technique. Yeah. We empathise with her, I think, yeah. a lot more in the beginning. Yeah, you know? yeah, I think, and as you, you get a bit more distant from her as she goes yeah. a bit further down the rabbit hole of this this romance and this crime, which is interesting because she is, well, first of all, she is the lead character, but she's a proper lead character in that she's in every scene, she's in almost like every shot as well. Yeah. You're fully with her all the way through, mm. even though you know so little about her. Yeah. It's almost like a. Um, like an untrustworthy narrator. Oh, what do you yeah. call it? Yeah, unreliable. Yeah. Unreliable narrator. Mm. Yeah, it's almost like that. Like you don't know whether or not you can trust her. Well, let's dive into those performances. So, uh, in an interview last year, Michael Pierce said, uh, "I think it was Elia." Uh, sorry, am I going to go Elia? Elia. 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 That's how they. Elia. 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 Michael Pierce said, uh, "I think it was uh, Elia Kazan." who said that 50% of a director's job is casting, uh, and although he said that the maths may have not been Kazan's strong suit, uh, you get the point. And I think that's, I can see why he's getting, why he's making those comments in that, uh, although jokingly in that Q&A, Josh, about uh, Jesse Buckley and Johnny Flynn getting all that praise, and no one's talking about, (laughs) no one wants to hear about Michael Pierce. Um, Who? Some guy. I can't believe I interviewed an empty chair. <laughs> <laughs> uh, but you can see why that's happening because these two lead performances are so strong. Let's well, we've actually we've mentioned Jesse Buckley quite a bit. Let's uh, let's give a background on Johnny Flynn, shall mm. we? South African born. Really? Yeah. Did you not know that? I didn't know that. I'm kind of obsessed with him. Really? Yeah, I really He's a bit like of a heartthrob, him. and I didn't yeah, I really realize like this. Because, <laughs> yeah, I watched the film with my girlfriend who had just binge watched all of Lovesick Yeah, as well. Lovesick is amazing. I loved it. Don't you love Johnny Flynn in it? Oh, yes. <laughs> <laughs> I do. <laughs> oh, isn't he so rugged and talented? Mm, I love him. <laughs> <laughs> He's a little bit Hunnamy. No? He's a got a bit of a little, touch a of the Hunnam. Charlie Hunnamy? Yeah. yeah, a little bit. A bit of the Hun man. Well, he's also a very talented musician. 
Yes. Which I, I once, appreciate. You know when it was really cool to see Mumford and Sons? No. Yeah, because that was a cool thing to do that people did. That oh, yeah, 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 back <laughs> in the day. Yeah, 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 when that was yeah. cool. Well, and uh, he, was, he was the first support to Mumford and Sons when I saw them. And, you know, he was fine. And then, like, <laughs> eight years later, here he is. Yeah. Uh, is he a solo artist or is he in a band? He's. Uh, this is. It's like the most twee kind of modern folk band name. It's like Johnny Flynn and the Sussex Wit. Yes. Oh my! <laughs> I Guys, take it back. I hate hating, this movie. Okay? <laughs> don't be hating. Are they good? I like them. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I've never seen them live, but. Okay. Yeah. It's just all about his acting now, isn't it? Like, that's yeah, I think he's, he's taken a, a change of. Uh, mm. Yeah. So uh, people might know him from from Love Sick, which was originally Scrotal Recall. Much Why would you change that? Yeah. It's so good. Netflix, man. Yeah. But he was also in Clouds of Sils Maria and played the Genius. young Albert Einstein mm. in Genius. Have mm. you seen that? Yeah, I saw it. Is it good? Yeah, I really liked it. Because I've just seen, noticed there's po- posters on the bus for a new one. There's the oh, Picasso yeah. one yes, with uh, Antonio next. Banderas. Yeah. Mm. Yeah. Every, that... every season focuses on a different genius. Um, um, yeah, I enjoyed it. I thought it was quite good. Yeah, isn't Ron Howard involved in it? Somehow? He is. Yeah. yeah, he directed the first episode, and I think he was involved in producing it. Think he's a producer it. and yeah. and Mitch Glazer as well from because uh, they're both involved in Arrested Development. Mm. Right. That may yeah. be completely false. Okay. Well, he got some like uh, Critics' Choice Awards yeah. uh, for his young Albert Einstein, which is really interesting and definitely because I really can't imagine that. So nope. that makes me like, I've never really been interested in watching that show and then reading that. Yeah. That's now more of a curiosity than anything else. Um, but Johnny Flynn is is good in this, and he he manages to take quite a a volatile character and actually make him not just a caricature. Mm. Yeah, it's a very actory performance. In that he's he's there's a lot of sort of squirming and a lot of he's doing a lot of kind of like ticks and a lot of just doing a lot mm. if that makes sense yeah there's a lot there's a lot to his performance I, in the interview Michael Pierce talks about how this is partly a fairy tale like a dark modern real fairy tale and I'm trying to work out what character in the fairy tale Pascal could be because at first he's the prince that comes and whisks away the girl in the tower, yeah. mm. but also he's the rugged, um, the huntsman, but also he's the monster in the woods. Maybe he's the beast, Sam. Yeah. Yeah? Hey? Maybe. Yeah. Maybe, yeah. Because that's what it is. He's, like, who's the beast is the film's question. I think the answer to that, Jake, is that we're all the beast. There's a beast in every man. Yes. Well, and he awakens the beast in her, I think, as well. Yeah, there's a lot of beasts and a lot of awakenings. <laughs> what if the real beast is... Love. Well, you say that as a joke, and you said that in Phantom <laughs> Thread as well, but there is uh, arguably that that is genuinely a point in this, that of their kind of destructive love mm. Um, mm. actually creating like, quite violent ends. Mm. These violent delights do have violent ends, mm. uh, someone might say. Mm-hmm. Someone might. <laughs> yes, uh, related to the dark fairy tale point, I think Pascal, because he's that blend, you describe him as like Prince Bad Wolf in a way. He's the Prince Charming, but he's also the monster. But you can also apply it to other characters, like uh, Geraldine James is the arguably wicked stepmother character, mm. even though she's mm. the biological mother. But um, Whereas the kind of... Um, I guess maybe it's a stretch to call him a suitor, but there's this uh, detective character called Clifford, played by Tristan... I think Tristan Gravel is his name, or something like that, um, who's got this kind of wolfish look to him. I don't know if anyone else kind of agree with that description, but I, f- I feel like Michael Pierce mentioned in the Q&A because apparently he did audition for Pascal. Right. And mm. that was sort of the kind of look they originally envisioned for the character. One thing I quite liked relating to the fairy tale thing, there's this little visual cue. So at one point, 
Mole invites Pascal to do some kind of work in their garden. Um, so he feel like fixes a bench and some patio slabs. But the, when he comes in the house and starts smoking, as he comes in, there's footage of a, like a crocodile on the on the television, like <laughs> consuming. I believe it's consuming a little creature, which kind of made me think of like Peter Pan, but also just like you know, you know, it literally the snap kind of happens cool. just as he yeah. comes in through the through like the garden, you know, outside garden door into the house, which is quite a nice little trick. Actually, related to the whole kind of wolf thing I mentioned. Whose idea was it to call this beast? And considering the char- the lead character, not called it Ginger Snaps. Hey, yeah, just good. saying. <laughs> you said that there was the great French title for this as well. No. Yeah, um, in France, this will be called the Jersey Affair, mm. which sounds not great. I mean, that like going back to your idea of this be sounding like a BBC Sunday night. Yeah, this film. could be BBC One, eight p.m. on yeah. a Sunday night. <laughs> Just after Call the Midwife or something. Yeah. The, oh, it's the Jersey Affair tonight. <clears throat> what, going back to what you were saying about the crocodile, uh, just in the back of, back of the room on the telly, uh, I think that's kind of tribute to Michael Pierce's fascination with details. Uh, I don't like it's not just following the characters and mm. their actions. He's really building a sense of a mood and a place, and that comes from building up these little details to get that location, and or even just the the fact that he's rolling. Uh, licorice rollies rather than mm. normal ones. Yeah. Mm. You just get like, and that just makes him a little bit cooler. A little bit cooler. And he's a bit more of a renegade. <laughs> and he smokes inside. Like, yeah. Uh, yeah, I think I quite like this idea of like bringing the outside in mm. and disrupting the suburban sort of conservative family, yeah. you know, unit which she never belonged to anyway. And there's a lot of like dirt coming in, mm. coming in you know. I was yeah. surprised at how shocked I was just at the thought of someone coming into your house who you don't know and just starting smoking. Yeah, I know. I had the it's same like reaction. Yeah. And I was just like, oh, he didn't even ask. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> but it is this kind of like disruption. It's like a blatant disregard for that yeah. sort of family, that sort of space. Well, yeah, you and know? you can totally see his act, like the fact that she's never felt really connected to that home yeah. when yeah. she sees someone who comes in and just does that. Yeah. You can imagine for her yeah. why that is so attractive. She, yeah. yeah, and she feels all throughout, which I think is is a testament to her performance, but she does feel this sort of like 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 wild untamed force that's like been repressed her whole life hmm. um, and has this darkness lurking mm. in the background because of her past. Um, and he kind of brings that out of her I think it's ambiguous to whether I mean it's it's obviously it's dark so it's, it has negative connotations but I also think it's like it awakens this force in her that's empowering as well mm. you know this almost like particularly feminine sort of at once vulnerable and at the same time like wild and strong sort of which is also folklore you know mm. that harkens back to like this mythic yeah and and like you getting really into fairy tale imagery of uh, just like basic duality of, yeah. Uh, yeah his costume and her costume and mm. uh, there is a bit where everyone's like in their middle class uh, linen suits for a fair and uh, Pascal just rocks up black t-shirt black jeans and uh, that's such a plain outfit yeah but mm. in that context he just looks like Satan <laughs> and like they reacting to him yeah. as if he is as well he's yeah. just such this, yeah. this unknown quantity for them and like no one knows how to control him uh, and I think part of mm. uh, Mole's like, attraction is that she feels that yeah. she can like connect to exactly. him as well and be part of that yeah. and then she's there in, in white and there are these yeah. 
fairy tale uh, moment of them walking along beach together in yeah, those contrasting exactly. outfits. And I like that you said the duality because I read I read the um, the Variety uh, review of this film and there was a, a line that stood out that I really liked. Um, and I think who said it? Guy Lodge. The counteracting beauty implied by the title is certainly present, though perhaps not at all separate, not all that separate from its beasts, which I think is when going back to the title. Mm. You know, who's the beast, who's, who's the beauty? And I like that ambiguity and that duality that plays throughout, which is quite cool. It actually gave me, like, thinking a bit <clears throat> of Lady Macbeth. Like, I can see that. Yeah, the sort of elemental setting mixed with a kind of very conservative feel of the pe- yeah. people within it. Yeah, And where that was taking a quite a modern progressive story and taking it into the past mm-hmm. to give it new context. Like, Beast felt very classical and yeah. taking a very old story and bringing it into a new context but they both got that quite as you say rugged elemental feeling and I could see uh, even down to the poster I, I think Beast uh, it's uh, it's Altitude they're releasing it. yes uh, and they had such success with the Lady Macbeth campaign and they've gone gone yeah. back to old reliable blue and yellow blue and yellow <laughs> yeah, I was going to say yeah um, but I could see this running a pretty similar Kind of I think you're right. Yeah, I think they're aiming for that. Also, yeah. blue and yellow was traditional for Beast's costume in the comics. So, <laughs> so oh, yeah, <laughs> that's it. That's the last podcast. Oh wow. Okay. Um, I think on what a note to end uh, the discussion on Beast, uh, which is out in cinemas uh, today. Uh, do go and check it out. Uh, but it's not the only film that you can be watching. Uh, there's, uh, there's obviously other stuff in the cinema, maybe big films involving hundreds of cast members. Uh, but there's also a little film called The Wound, uh, <laughs> which uh, we played at London Film Festival last year. It's going to be on Curzon Home Cinema from today. Uh, Watch Kelly, it. you saw this a while back, yeah. Yeah, I saw, it, I saw it at the LFF. It's an interesting film. I think there's been a lot of controversy around it, but it's definitely worth seeing. I think it's, I'm very proud that it came out of South Africa and I think it's dealing with things that like should be on screen. What are those things? Um, it's... Uh, Dealing with uh, uh, sexuality in this uh, very uh, specific context, which is uh, the Costa community uh, in the Eastern Cape in South Africa, and I think um, so. It's you know it's the tra- it's the classic tradition versus modernity. Like it's a good film. People should watch it. But uh, it's not the only thing on Curzon Home Cinema. So we've actually just put up a Claire Denis collection, which has got Beau Travai, 35 Shots Around, White Material, and, of course, Let the Sun Shine In, which was the focus of last week's episode. Uh, if you haven't heard that already, go back and listen. We've got Sophie Monks-Kaufman on the show, contributing editor to Little White Lies, uh, as well as an interview with Claire herself, which is really good fun. Um, she does not mince her words, uh, which I'm sure anyone that's read any of the interviews that she's been doing around this film um, will be very aware of. Uh, if you've got any thoughts on Beast uh, for next week's show or any of our recent releases, so Let the Sunshine In and Custody, do email those in to podcast at curzon.com as we would love to read them out. Um, and if you haven't already subscribed to the show, you can do that on Acast and iTunes. Uh, leave us a review or a comment. That would be really wonderful. Uh, until next time, though, we'll have to say farewell. So it is farewell from Kelly Powell. Goodbye. Farewell from Josh Slater Williams. Bye. And farewell from the Beast from the East. Farewell. Can we do that every week? Can we do the Beast from the East? (laughs) 
Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns.